Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, April 24th, 2023. Last week, late last week, I did a great show with the uh, American Bosnian writer, Alexander Himon, um, on his new book, The World and All That It Holds. It's a magnificent book. It's the story uh, of a man called Rafael Pinto, uh, somebody from the Bosnian city of Sarajevo, who is exiled during the First World War, first enlisted in the army, and then treks eastward, um, never comes back to his homeland. It's a story of horrible suffering. And one of the things that I think defines the book is Pinto's impulse to survive. doesn't matter what the world throws at him, persecution, violence, tragedy, the loss of his lover, the loss of his daughter, he nonetheless has a will to survive. And that may be somehow bound up in his love of his homeland and particularly his home city, Sarajevo, and this desire to go back to it. He never goes back, but he carries this place around with him in his heart. It's his Jerusalem. I was thinking of Heman's book uh, in the context uh, of a conversation we're doing today with Kenan uh, Orhan. Um, he's less well known than Heman, but he's also from that neck of the woods uh, rather than Bosnia. He's from Turkey. He's an American Turkish writer, and he has a first collection uh, of stories just out this week I Am My Country. And as the summary, as the publisher explains, uh, this is a book that focuses and reiterates our impulse to survive. Uh, uh, Kenan is joining us from his home in Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, Kenan, uh, welcome. Congratulations on your new book. You must be very proud of the book. It's your first collection. You've been published all over the place, but this is the first formal book. Uh, is that fair? If there is a, a generalization one can make about your, your new collection of stories, is it about this impulse to survive no matter what the world throws at us? I think um, certainly many of the characters come to embody this impulse. I don't know if I would say that's the, that's the main takeaway from this um, so much as perhaps, or at least adding on to that, that, a lot of these characters are doing it as a small act of rebellion. Um, there's not always a lot of access uh, for the sort of large scale rebellious acts that it takes to topple a, topple a regime. Um, not everyone can always participate in that, but sometimes um, just continuing to beat on uh, despite what the world throws at you can be enough of a, enough of an act of resistance. Um, and so I think kind of centering it more on that uh, is is pretty accurate. Kenan, I'm struck with the fact that it's often people of dual or, or triple nationalities and identity who, who have the greatest sensibility to belonging. As I said, uh, Alexander Himon uh, was exiled from Sarajevo by accident during the Civil War and never really went back. You yourself are of 
Turkish origins. You live now in America. You're called a Turkish American writer. What is your country? Do you have one? I I certainly do. Um, for America is my country in, in as much as uh, I'm Turkish American, but it's only it's only half Turkish. My mother is is the Turk. Uh, they came, her and her family came to the states uh, from Istanbul, and so I had. I had sort of this uh, split experience of what a country is, um, as you mentioned about kind of dual and triple identities. Um, I'm firmly rooted in in America, but we would spend summers over in Turkey. So it kind of, it opened up a, a, a strange dichotomy for me because Kansas is a very different place than Istanbul. Um, and it was a place I could claim access to and claim sort of a, a national identity toward, um, but it was always very um, insecure, I, sometimes instable. Um, sometimes I'm a little self-conscious about how Turkish I am, um, but yeah. I wonder how you would compare and contrast Kansas City and um, Istanbul. I was in Kansas City a few years ago for a political event, and I was struck with how dead the place is, how it uh, there's an absence of a center. I didn't know much about it. And then I just watched the Ken Burns documentary on the history of jazz. And I didn't realize how important the history uh, that Kansas City was in the history of jazz. It once had a very vibrant, uh, culturally rich downtown. Of course, Istanbul is, is anything but a perfect place, but it's enormously vibrant. And it's been for many hundreds of years how would you compare and contrast Kansas City and Istanbul? Um, they definitely feel like polar opposites, but um, still a little related in as much as Kansas City occupies um, this boundary. Uh, you know, there's Kansas City, Missouri and Kansas City, Kansas, and it, it formed out of a desire to create free states in tandem with slave states before the Civil War. Um, and it, it, the boundaries, though, for it... Um, for most of Kansas City are very arbitrary. It's just a straight line um, kind of drawn on a map um, and one side's Kansas and one side's Missouri. Um, whereas Istanbul, of course, very geographically has the Bosphorus cutting it right down the center, the throat of the city, splits it between the European side uh, and the Asian side. Um, and Istanbul occupies, especially in the West, um, this kind of binary in a lot of people's imagination you know, it's, it's a place where East meets West. It's where progress meets con, uh, cons conservatism. It's where uh, the past meets the present and the future. Um, like you say, there's huge stratifications of culture all through the city um, from ancient Greece, Rome, um, then Byzantium to, you know, the Ottoman Empire, the fracturing of that, and now modern day Turkey. Um, and it's all visible right next to, you know, a McDonald's. Um, so it's very weird to to even try to compare Kansas City to Istanbul um, because Kansas City has, like you mentioned, it doesn't really have a downtown. And that was because of some really bad racial prejudice at, at working with um, sort of a real estate shift, a white flight away from downtown. Uh, and Kansas City is essentially just an enormous suburb with a very small footprint for a downtown. Yeah, um, it's interesting that you bring up the race issue. I hadn't really thought of it in those terms. Of course, everything in America ultimately boils down to race. Yeah. 
the greatness of Kansas City historically was rooted in its African-American vitality and creativity. And of course, it's probably no coincidence that you've had the flight to the suburbs and the destruction, uh, the vacuum that exists at, at the center of the city, like so many American cities. I'm intrigued, uh, Kenan, that you compare, though, your, your comparison of, of Kansas as this place defined by bridges and, and, and Istanbul. Uh, we had Thomas Frank on the show. He, of course, he wasn't talking about his Kansas book, but he's probably best known for his book, What's the Matter with Kansas? How Conservatives Won the Heart of America. I wonder whether there is also, you're a political writer, you're interested in the, the odd, surreal, troubling politics, authoritarian politics, particularly of our age. Is there a connection between a Kansas and a Kansas City where increasingly people seem to vote against their own interests and perhaps a place like Istanbul where people also vote against their own class and material interests in the name of their country? The title of your book, of course, is I Am My Country. Absolutely. Um, Kansas City skews rather left um whereas you know the rest of kansas city is kind of fighting against to use that term loosely um large swaths of missouri and kansas which are staunchly rightist and istanbul is is no different really there's kind of a strange political movement in turkey um leading up to now it's shifting it's we're just entering a shift where a lot of kurdish minority voters uh, voted against, very explicitly voted against their interests for Erdogan and his regime right now, um, kind of along religious lines, even though Erdogan and the regime were not hiding anything about how they would treat Kurds, how they continued to jail uh, Kurdish politicians, um, how they started removing Kurdish language um, from road signs, how they started making it illegal to speak it uh, in the workplace in certain areas, and then martial law existing. I mean, the east of Turkey is under martial law right now. Um, and it makes it easier for the, the government to kind of jail any dissident Kurds. Um, and of course, I mean, there's the long history of the PKK and um, non-militant like HDP, uh, Kurdish people struggling for rights and voices um, in Turkey. We're not quite there um, in Kansas and Missouri, although I mean, Anytime something wild in the news comes up about a shooting or some sort of race-motivated uh, crime, it, it's not uncommon at all for it to be in Kansas City or in St. Louis. Um, we are kind of in the middle of right where people hold on to these horrible backward racist views, uh, have access to weapons, and will continue to use them, while also then sort of younger generations are, are pushing for equitability um, and I, but it's not I mean, it's not like everybody votes for their interest here. And certainly that's true in Turkey. Uh, people are willing to kind of give up some rights, I think, as a way to stick it to the other side more than anything. That's the most common thread I've seen um, in, in Kansas and Turkey is people will vote against their interest as long as it upsets the other side more than anything. Kenan, you grew up and you live and you teach in Kansas City, the center of America, perhaps oddly enough, in a geographical sense, the center of the world, the, the world where everything 
meets the Istanbul of America. Why did you choose to write this first book of stories about Istanbul, a place quite far away, where, as you say, you haven't lived and is symbolic but relatively distant compared to Kansas? Why not write a, a collection of short stories about Kansas and Kansas City and that bridge in the center of the world? I think there's certainly enough material here for a book. Um, Kansas has a really strange history, especially coming from, you know, it was settled by a lot of militant pastors, abolitionist pastors from like Massachusetts, Maine, that area. Um, so it, it has a very strange his rebellious history that now has like shifted um, over time very gradually, but it's, it's too close to me. It feels um, I write generally as a way to discover or to, to play, I guess. I, I'm, very, I'm very easily bored and very easily distracted. And writing for me always has to have this kind of magic of, I don't want to say escapism because I, I do like to deal with very serious issues in my work, but it's a way for me to get outside of my own life. I've never really enjoyed um, books that too closely resemble, I think, an author's biography. Um, just because I think, you know, life happens outside of a writer's office. We're constantly looking out our windows, but there's more than what we can see out of our window. Um, but that is all kind of in the back. At the forward of, or at the front of my mind in writing this book was an attempt to hold on to Istanbul. I spent a lot of summers there growing up. We'd go visit large swaths of relatives. We'd We'd have sort of the touristic experience of Istanbul, but then also the insider experience of Istanbul. And I, I was just living in this golden and, and privileged time because I wasn't aware of anything uh, politically. And then suddenly in 2013, it was like this watershed moment that really kind of woke me up to Turkey. What happened in 2013, Kanan? Of course, uh, it was the Gezi Park protests. So in 2013, the first real massive movement against Erdogan, the current president's regime, occurred when they were going to kind of clear one of the last big green spaces in Istanbul, Gezi Park, for a kind of neo-Ottoman architecture shopping mall, uh, which was just kind of hand in hand with Erdogan's neo-Ottoman policies. Um, and a lot of environmentalist students kind of just sat in and protested. And then very quickly with Twitter, Everybody who had a complaint against the government in Istanbul poured out into the streets and occupied Gezi Park so that it was like a million people here in a city of 15 million out in the park protesting at the at the peaks of it. And it was months long and it started taking over in other cities. People would stage protests uh, in support of the protests in Gezi Park. And it was just this watershed moment, both for me very personally, but also for Turkey, um, followed really only by the the 2016 coup attempt in July as sort of probably the bigger... Right. We, we, we've done a number of shows. We had, um, I'm sure you're familiar with her work, Eche Temelkuran, um, who, who was very much involved in Gezi Park and then became exiled, now living in Zagreb. Uh, she has a, an excellent book, How to Lose a Country, The Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship, which in a non-fictional sense, I think, lays out what you're describing, this slide into authoritarianism. So is this Absolutely. the heart of your book, I Am My Country, a narrative of the slide in Turkey under Erdogan into 
authoritarianism from the promise of democracy of, if not the Arab Spring, certainly the Turkish Spring of the early 20 uh, teens? I think it is. I hope I hope for it to be read that way as sort of the fictional narration of people involved directly with this uh, these events, but also people very much on the periphery or people experiencing the consequences, even if they're not involving themselves in this. But it's not just that. There's a the novella in the collection, the, the long piece, uh, starts off with the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire and takes place mostly in the 50s, in the summer leading up to the Istanbul pogrom, which uh, happened in 1955, when the city of Istanbul was kind of race baited into trying to kill all of its Jews, Armenians, and Greeks uh, again. Um, and there's a sort of a recurring pattern in Turkish history. Uh, you start to notice if you're a student of modern, the modern republic, uh, as it's called, since 1923, where there's shifts for a little bit towards democracy and progress, usually to gain uh, political cachet on the international scale. And then when that doesn't pan out, um, kind of a, a, a shift then to a more Islamist uh, based, uh, more conservative based uh, political movement. Um, but Turkey's been kind of doing that pendulum slowly shifting further and further towards, well, I say that, but <laughs> the first president of Turkey, Ataturk, you know, hailed as the, the father of modern Turkey, um, was essentially a dictator. He was a, it was a one-party system, a forced one-party system. Um, and we don't really talk about that or admit that as Turks very often. And it's certainly the, the ethnic elements and his role in the Armenian genocide. That's probably the subject of another conversation. We did a show uh, with Moises Naim, one of the, the most um, perceptive observers of contemporary authoritarianism. Uh, he, he has a new book out, The Revenge of Power, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics for the 21st Century. What's interesting to me about Naim is earlier in his life, he was the finance minister in Venezuela, and he's very much grounded in Latin American sensibilities and politics. And I'm wondering, and, and, and he notes that much of the playbook for contemporary authoritarianism these days, whether it's Erdogan or Putin or Duterte or Trump, was learnt from the Latin American playbook. Given, um, Kenan, this very rich history of literature, Latin American magic realism, often directed against one kind of authoritarianism or another, what, um, what literary influences have driven I am my country? Is it mostly American or Turkish or other more global voices, Latin American in particular? It's certainly more global, I think, than American. Um, although contemporary American literature right now has a really strong uh, uh, kind of speculative genre growing right now, I think mostly of authors like Kelly Link, um, where surrealism- You blurbed your book, I think. <laughs> yes, she was very generous um, and it was kind of a wonderful- I'll have to get her on the show, actually. She's fantastic, very, very intelligent. Um, and she works in, fantastic trans, uh, traditions like neo-fabulism. Um, but it's it's less apparent, at least in my experience of American literature uh, until recently. And so as I read novels throughout the 20th century, I was reaching more for like Italian 
or uh, Balkan or Turkish or South American uh, mm. stories. Uh, predominantly, I'm influenced by, in Italy, writers like Italo Calvino and Dino Buzzati um, and Tommaso Landolfi, who write um, really strange stuff. Calvino, probably the least strange of those three, um, but just sort of strange things. And Italy's political history is incredibly turbulent. I, I didn't realize this um, for most of my life and only kind of started to learn about it. But Balkans, um, especially after, you know, the rise of communism and the fall of, or the Soviet Union and the fall of the Iron Curtain, a lot of Balkan literature used the fall of the Ottoman Empire or the bureaucracy of the Ottoman Empire to lampoon and farce and poke fun at the Soviet Union. Um, and do it safely. And I think that's kind of a distinction worth noting internationally versus American sort of surrealism is that more often than not internationally, it's done to avoid censorship. Um, whereas here it's done because it, it, it adds a sort of weirding and, and strangeness to something that feels so strange anyway. I think it's a good, a good use of, of form to uh, mirror function and, and subject. Uh, Kenan, uh, we did a show a year or two ago with an author um, of a book about the Ottoman Empire with a degree of nostalgia suggesting that we have much to learn from the Ottomans. W what do you think of that observation? Are you in some ways, particularly given what Erdogan continues to do in Turkey and this renationalization of or the revival of Turkish nationalism, should we have some degree of nostalgia for some of least of the, the multicultural, multi, multilateral practices of the Ottoman state and of the Ottoman culture? It's, a, it's an incredibly thin line to walk, unfortunately, um, because kind of in the West, there isn't so much. You know, the sick man of Europe which has largely been debunked by any, any serious historian, um, the, the myth that the Ottoman Empire had been in decline since 1600, um, as opposed to just shifting differently to very different problems that the rest of Europe was facing and, and using a multinational empire uh, and, and kind of keeping things going. Um, but while I do think that we in the West could do a better job of acknowledging sort of some of the nice things that happened in the Ottoman Empire. As soon as you mention this, uh, generally in Turkish spheres, um, that's when the ultranationalists come out uh, and, and try to co-opt that to then remove any memory of, of genocide or any of the, the Devşeme system, which was essentially a, a tax of enslaving a child from a family and making them a soldier. Um, and that, you know, that's the literalness of what happened. But what isn't so much talked about in the West is that generally sometimes peasants would offer up a child because it was better to have a child enter this system and become a politician than being a peasant or they couldn't feed all the kids that they had. So they gave one up. Um, but there, I mean, that's just that's one small portion of it. Um, anything that looks at the Ottoman Empire nostalgically needs to have a healthy serving of, of nuance with it. Otherwise, you very, very quickly descend into sort of the ultra-nationalist spheres. Um, so, so Ken, and you're, you're ambivalent about the past, about being nostalgic for an imaginary place. 
borrowing from Calvino, invisible cities that don't really exist. What about the future? You, you warn in the book that we're not Syria, at least not yet. And we've done a number of shows on Syria, one on the terrible damage by Russia's Syrian intervention with Washington Post, Joby Warwick, another with CNN's Clarissa Ward on the tragedy of Syria and a third with Daniel Levin on the, uh, the, the tragedy of the Syrian economy, a war economy that's barely an economy. Do you feel, and are you warning in the book, I am my country, that the future of Turkey could be that of, civil, uh, of Syria, of the destruction of the, of, 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 of the state, of its fragmentation, a descent into uh, a Hobbesian war of all against all? I... I think it's it's in the in the minds of some Turks, um, but it's not looked in at the geopolitical realities uh, uh, head on. I think Turkey occupies a very privileged position um, in the Middle East, uh, mostly because of its membership in NATO. Um, you know, could something like this happen, like what happened in Syria, happen to a NATO member? If you asked me before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I probably would have said. No way. And now I'm not entirely sure, but I think Turkey's playing its hand that it was dealt very, very well at the moment, even though they're sliding towards authoritarianism or they're already, they're still friends enough with people in the West um, because they occupy an important geopolitical position. Um, but I don't think that that means there's any guarantee that Turkey can't enter into sort of either some sort of civil unrest and endless war like what was in Syria or some sort of uh, outside influenced uh, unrest. Uh, it, I'm not entirely sure. I'm a little more hopeful than that. I'm a little more hopeful than that character. I think Turkey's future can be bright still. Um, and I'm very hopeful for this upcoming election in a couple of weeks. Yeah. The, talk very briefly about the elections. Uh... Big yeah. test, according to Al Jazeera, for Erdogan. Every time there's a new election, it's always a big test. And he always seems to win. It's rather like Netanyahu, Netanyahu in Israel. But is there a chance that he's going to get replaced? Is, is the, the mayor of Istanbul, I know, has always been quite strong and, and, and charismatic. It, there's an opportunity. Um, I don't know if I believe in the optimism as much as some pundits. Um, but if you look at the 2019 uh, mayoral elections of Istanbul, which are usually kind of the bellwether for how the rest of the country is going to go for Erdogan. Um, the vote was incredibly close, barely won by the opposite, opposition candidate. Uh, the government said, sorry, we've got to do a redo. So a couple months later they did. Um, and then it, it was a huge swing. Uh, and that was just in 2019, right with COVID uh, on the cusp. COVID occurred. There's a huge economic downturn in Turkey. When I was last there, you could get about one and a half liras for a dollar. Now it's near 20 liras to a dollar. Um, so inflation has just wrecked them. They have had, I, I mean, the horrible uh, geographical catastrophe or the geological catastrophe of the earthquakes. Um, nobody's very happy with Erdogan right now. His base is even kind of getting upset with him. The voters who are voting against their interests are starting to kind of feel the consequences of that. And he hasn't really bothered to come up with any solutions because he and the rest of the AKP are, I think, pretty intelligently aware that they 
if they can't offer solutions and can't actually come up with solutions, they might as well plunder the country while they can, um, which is essentially what's happening. And I think they, I think they realize that the ship is sinking. Um, yeah, we've done a number of shows on on the politics of Turkey, and particularly with my old friend Solio Zell, who's an Istanbul-based political analyst, one of the most respected in the country. Finally, I mean, you, your book, um, I Am My Country, is a series of stories about Istanbul and Turkey rather than a political analysis. Can I know, what would you like people, I, I don't want, we want people to buy the book, of course. What, what do you want people to take away from it? What, what What's the goal in terms of remembering or understanding or having Turkey and Istanbul opened up to them? What do you want people to to know about this place this magical place i that's the that's the key word for me is magic istanbul has always felt very magical for me and i i would like to remove it as a caricature in the mind of the west uh and sort of make it a real place um one that's occupied by of course very different experiences from our own but really truly at the heart of this book is is a hope for acknowledging that humans are all humans everywhere we are um, and though our plights can feel different, there's a lot of resonances and a lot of rhyming with a lot of the things we're all experiencing globally. Uh, that's what I that's what I want my readers to see is that we as a species are a lot more connected than we sometimes realize.